Welcome to Western Sermon Podcast of the Week. We are so glad you joined us today. If you have been encouraged by our ministry and would like to support us financially, you can do so at westernroadchurch.com slash give. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy this week's message. Well, amen. We're excited to hear the word this morning, and uh, I am Excited to also announce that I'm not preaching. No, I I miss every opportunity that I don't get, but I am excited to have our guest speaker. His name is Miguel. He's here with his wife as well, and the kids just ran off to class. And um, I had the privilege of meeting him uh, about a month and a half ago or so. And uh, one thing about Miguel that really impacted me was his, his life story. I don't know if you're going to share a little bit about that or not, uh, but regardless of that fact, it, it spoke to me personally, I, and I thought, wow, to be serving the Lord today, um, to be uh, you know, pre- a preacher of his word is a big deal when life dishes you blow after blow, uh, but I admire that in you, and I'm really grateful to have you and your family with us today. And so can we give a warm Weston welcome to Miguel as he comes to preach the word this morning. Well, good morning. How many are ready to receive this morning? Are you ready? You're ready. All right. Well, He kind of stole my thunder a little bit, but I am this morning going to share a little bit of my story. And I'm going to do it a little bit differently. It's new for me, but I'm going to give you a snapshot of my journey as kind of the backdrop. And then I'm going to share with you three things that God has really shown me throughout my journey from where I am today. All right, so you look at me. I got a smile on my face. I'm married to a beautiful woman. You know, I got two kids, and I may look like I have it all together. But I didn't always start out that way. I didn't. In fact, when I came into this world, I kind of was doomed from the very beginning. And I'll explain to you why. I had a mother and I had a father. But my mother and my father were not married to each other. In fact, my mother was my dad's mistress. Okay? And my dad was married to somebody else, had children with that person, and then somehow my mom and my dad, they met, and out came me, all right? Now, here's the deal. I am the oldest of four. Now, to hide a secret with one child is is crazy, but four kids is really crazy. My, My dad managed to do it for so long. He did. He was very manipulative. He was very deceitful. You couldn't trust the word that he said. So I'm the oldest of four. I have one brother. I have two sisters. Love them dearly. But when I came into this world, I didn't have a choice. This was the life I was brought into, and I had to make the best of it. My mom and my dad, there was a big age gap between them. They were 20 years of age apart. I remember looking through some files and seeing on my birth thing that my mom at the time was 35 years old and my dad was 54. And just to let you know, I was born in Mount Sinai Hospital here in Toronto. I was born here, lived in Scarborough for a little bit, and then spent most of my teenage years, most of my childhood up until the age of 14 in the York 
Mills and Don Mills area in North York. Grew up at 255 Roywood Drive. And in public, I had a smile on my face. Every, family life seemed good. But behind closed doors, it was very, very different. Most kids, when they see their parents, they call them mom, they call them dad. My dad, because he had to hide a big secret, I was not allowed to call him dad for a very long time. So when I would bring him to class, bring him to school things, they say, who is this? It was, this is a friend of the family. I knew him as dad, but I couldn't tell anyone else otherwise. It was, that was just the way it was. My dad, I remember hearing him have phone calls with somebody else on the other line, and he would always refer to my mom as a friend of the family, and he would always refer to her as he, and say, he is sick, he is being taken care of, his kids are doing what. Now that I'm older, I understand why he referred to my mom as he instead of she. My dad was very abusive physically, mentally, and emotionally. There was not a day that would not, I would not go by without getting a slap, a punch, or a kick. It was just the way life was in my household. It, that was the norm. It was chaos. All right? My dad, when he was over and he was helping my mom try to raise us, he wasn't easy on my mom as well. He was abusive to my mom mentally, physically, and emotionally. And if he didn't get his way, he would use me as the bait to get his way. He would hold me out there. I remember him saying things to me like, you better tell your mom that you hate her. You better tell your mom this right now or else you would get some. Me being a scared, scrawny little boy, what else are you going to do? You're going to listen. This is your dad. So I did it. And this went on for years. But my world changed in 1989. Because it, cha it changed and it impacted my life so much. Because on April the 12th, 1989, so when I was growing up, most people get to learn how to play and all that. And I got to learn those things, but I had to grow up fast. I had to learn how to help out around the house, do dishes, do laundry, cook, help my siblings with homework, get their lunches ready, walk them to school, walk them home from school. It was just a nightmare. That was my responsibility. My mom was getting sick, and I didn't know why prior to this day. Now, I'm dating myself, but doctors came to your house back in the day. <laughs> All right, they did. So the doctors made frequent visits to, my, visits to my house to see my mom. But on April the 12th, 1989, my world changed, not for the good, because I came home for lunch from school and was hoping to do what I usually do with my siblings, running through the doors, say, hi, dad, hi, mom, make lunch, go back to school, and that's it. Get a little pep talk, and away we go. But this time, when I came home, it was a very dark day. I remember walking into the townhouse. I remember the lights being out downstairs, and I remember the lights being on up the stairs, and I remember hearing crying upstairs and hearing some conversation. So I went upstairs, I took my siblings, sent them to the room, I went to go see my dad, the doctor was there, I saw my mom lying on her bed. And I remember my dad looking over at me and he said, come here. He said, the doctor says your mom does not have much time, but she is about to pass. And so I got to hold her hand one last time, I got to tell her I loved her, and moments later she was gone. 
It was later explained to me that maybe two, three years prior, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, pregnant with my youngest sister at the time. Medical technology back then wasn't like it was today. It was still pretty good. But because she was pregnant with my little sister, she had to make a choice. She was told, I learned later on, that if she aborted my sister, took the treatment, there would be a 90% chance that she would live a good life. But if she didn't, she could go through with the pregnancy and the chances would get slimmer and slimmer and slimmer as time went on. Well, my mom opted to give life to my younger sister. She made the ultimate sacrifice. But my world changed upside down because now there was a lot of uncertainty. In my household, my dad was the authority figure. He was everything. He controlled everything. He controlled who you talked to, who you hung out with. You couldn't say boo unless he said it was okay. And because of that, I had no idea who aunts and uncles were. I didn't understand that kind of a world. I didn't understand family because we were not allowed to talk to family. But as my mom was getting sick, some of them started to slowly show up, and so they had no choice. We got to know them a little bit. But after my mom passed, there was a lot of uncertainty because it it was like, now, okay, are we staying with our dad? Who's taking care of us? What's going on? I'm seven at this point. What's going to happen? Well, aunts and uncles came for a bit. They came and they helped out as much as they could. And just like my dad always does, he pushed them out, pushed them away. Always told me stories like, they want your youngest, they don't want you, you're too old, you're not good enough. Nobody wants somebody like this. Those are things I would hear. You can't trust them because they want to split you and your siblings apart. Those are the kind of lies I was fed at seven years old. Now, I had my mom's last name when I was born. When my mom passed, my dad changed my last name, hence I have it now. But for the next few years of my life, I grew up to be a man very fast. Because my dad was a short little guy, shorter than me, weighed about 300 pounds, and was not healthy. Had arthritis, other things wrong with him, he couldn't do much. So it was up to me to make sure the house ran. It was up to me to make sure that the house ran as smoothing as possible, and if I didn't do it right, it would be wallop, 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 and away we went and you move on. I hated my life so much, I never told anyone a thing. But I would secretly pray that God would make this end. I would sometimes secretly pray, God, what did I do to deserve this? If I did something to offend you, please take this away. Forgive me. I was just young and naive. I didn't know who Jesus was, had no idea. But I thought, how can a God allow this to happen to me? I tried to down cough medicines I could that I could find in the medicine cabinet to numb the pain and hopefully just fade away. But it didn't happen. Life just kept going. My brother, he's like two years apart from me, he got angrier and angrier. And one day my brother and I, we decided, because we had enough, that if we got old enough and strong enough, we were going to put our dad in his place. That's the road I would have headed down. But things changed again. So in 1989, my mom passed. Now check this out. This is crazy. But my dad's actual wife ended up 
being my stepmom for a little bit. It was crazy. I found out later on that she was a Christian herself, served Jesus, and she just thought it was the right thing to do. But she came in and out every so often into our lives, and she would help out when she could. And man, she was a great cook. Jamaican and made great food, man. I was talking to someone the other day, and one thing I know is this, I've never met a Jamaican yet that can't cook. (laughs) But they make great food. But I'm going to tell you, it was like this for year, day in, day out, month after month, week after week, year in, year out. Until 1995 came around. About the last week of January, my dad started to change a little bit. Now, I'm not going to lie, I was not an angel of a kid. <laughs> I was rough around the edges, I caused problems in school, I wasn't the easiest. My brother... He caused more problems. (laughs) So we put a few extra gray hairs on my dad's head. But in January, the last week of January 1995, my dad was not himself. Because whenever something went wrong, he didn't get as angry as he used to. He would just be like, hmm, whatever. Wouldn't Wouldn't eat as much. Just stop being interactive. And this went on for a couple of weeks. Now my dad had a big thing about not going to the doctors. He would never go to the hospital if he didn't, don't go to the hospital, don't go to the doctors unless you absolutely had to. Part of it was because he had to hide what was going on. So, you know, when the abuse was going on and you get the marks, he'd fix them. But my life changed again, February the 12th, 1995. Because I remember this particular day, it was about grade eight, I was home, came home after school, my stepmom happened to be there, went through the normal routine, made sure supper was good, the kids had uh, my, my siblings, their homework was done. And then I had to help my dad out with whatever and then put them to bed. But this particular night, I decided to sleep downstairs on the couch, which I normally don't do. I got to stay up later and watch TV, which was bonus, <laughs> which I normally wasn't allowed to do. But I stayed up and I fell asleep on the couch. And I remember my stepmom waking me up at 11 o'clock at night and saying, hey, something is wrong. Your dad has not been himself. He hasn't tried to go to the bathroom all day. He just hasn't been himself. We need to get him up and we need to get this figured out. So at 11 o'clock at night, my dad was in this day bed, we call this, in the living room. Because he couldn't do much, that's what he did. He just laid there most of the time. He couldn't get up without assistance. So here I am, a scrawny little kid, pulling up this 300-pound man, just saying, hey, let's do this. One, two, three. But this time, he felt heavier than normal. (laughs) Heavier than normal. I didn't know what that was. But, so I said, hey, let's try again. One, two, three, and nothing. So I said, hey, maybe a third time is a charm. So I went at it again, one, two, three. He didn't get up, but he fell off the bed and landed on the floor, face down. And I remember looking, and I was like, just looking at him, and my stepmom's saying, he's not breathing, something's wrong. And I stood there, and I was like, dad, dad, and there was no response. So my stepmom had to pick up the phone, called 911, they came, And he was gone just like that. 
just like that. At that moment, though, I was full of mixed emotions. A, I was sad that my dad had passed. But B, I was happy because the pain, the abuse ended. But I was also confused because I didn't know what was going to happen next. Well, what happened next, we had the funeral. My two sisters and I ended up going into one foster home in Scarborough. My brother, because he had different issues, ended up going into a group home. And we had these visits back and forth. And there was uncertainty of what was going to happen. But I was told from the very beginning that the odds of all four of you staying together are slim to none. The chances of people taking four kids in is very, very low. So she asked us, our social worker at the time, this is the Toronto Catholic Children's Aid, she sat down with us and said, hey, listen, do you have any idea of family anywhere so we can do some looking into this? I knew, but I never said anything because I was scared. Because my dad had put in my brain so much that if you've done anything, you can't reach out to family or anything. Even if I was dead, I come up from the grave and I will get you. And I believed it. So I didn't say anything. But my brother, who is not the sharpest tool in the shed and doesn't remember much, happened to one day remember and just spit out of nowhere, I think we have family in a place called Chatham. Okay, so the social worker, I have it now, ran this little classified ad in the Chatham newspaper. And it says, hey, so-and-so passed, father passed, has four kids. If you know these people, please contact so-and-so. Well, one of my aunts and uncles in Chatham happened to read the newspaper, happened to read the classified section, happened to see this, reached out to everybody else, all the other aunts and uncles got on the phone and beelined it down to here, to Toronto. And we all visited and we talked for a bit, and it was great seeing them, but it was uncertain of what was going to happen. Because when you go into the system and you go into fostering, family gets first crack, but if none of that works out, then it just filters its way down. Well, the aunt and uncle who happened to find this article happened to be believers in Christ. And they felt that God said to them, we need to take these four rowdy ragamuffin kids in. And so they began the process of bringing us into their lives, and them coming into our lives. Now, it wasn't easy. It wasn't clear sailing. The odds were stacked against us. My aunt and uncle, they were older. They were in their mid-50s. My uncle had, I don't know, maybe three or four heart attacks already, so the doctors would not sign off. They would come in. You just name it. Date after date, you know. I remember being promised one day, hey, we're all going to move. So we packed our stuff while I was in foster care. We're ready to move. And then we're told that day, uh-uh, this is not going to happen. Two months later, the same thing. Another month later, the same thing. Finally, I said to myself, I'm tired of this. This is not going to happen. 
Let's just move on. But I was wrong. It did happen. November the 1st, 1995, I was told, this is going to happen. So I packed like I normally did. Mind you, I didn't pack as much as I should have because I thought this time, eh -eh, it wasn't going to happen. But it did. And I moved from Toronto to some small boonhick city named Chatham. And I'm telling you, if you've ever been to Chatham and you come from Toronto, it is a culture shock. (laughs) It is. Lots of cornfields. Lots. I remember being told by somebody in high school, the most fun you're going to have here is you see that doorknob? Keep turning it. I was like, what am I getting myself into? But we moved. My aunt and uncle had one rule and one rule only. It was this. As long as you're in this house, we go to church on Sundays and Wednesdays. That was it. No questions asked. (laughs) If you don't like it, see you later. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. Yes, sir. All right, so we went. I went to church, started going to youth group, starting to get to know people. But I was still hurting inside, and I'm about 13, 14 at this time. So in December of 1995, we go to a Sunday night service. Pastor stands up. At the end of his message, he gives the call, the message, the call to salvation. My brother and I look at each other. We're like, mm-mm. This is not happening. Uh Uh-uh. I don't know what this weird stuff is, but we're not touching it with a 10-foot pole. My two sisters, on the other hand, very enthusiastic. Hey! And they head up to the altar, and away we go. So we go back home, and where I lived, so we didn't live exactly in Chatham. It was like a 20-minute drive from the country to Chatham. So we drove home, and there was just silence. Now, when you live in the country, one of the benefits of living in the country is snow days. So when you go to school, and if it snows, and the school buses can't get you to school, guess what? You get to stay home. (laughs) Well, Monday, December 5th, happened to be a snow day. And so my uncle, in his infinite wisdom, decided to have us all sit down at the kitchen table, make his famous hamburgers, and decided to talk about Jesus. And at the end, he had this stern look on his face, and he said, so Miguel, what do you think? Would you like to invite Jesus into your life? And I said, yeah, let's do it. I said it, but inside, I was like, I'm going to give this Jesus guy a try, but if he cannot get rid of this pain, if he cannot fill this void in my life, If he can't put these pieces together in a couple years, I'm out. My plan was I would live with my aunt and uncle for a couple years, and at 16 years of age, I was coming back to the city, and who knew what would have happened next? But that was my plan. So I decided to ask Jesus into my heart with conditions. I did. My life didn't get better, it kind of got worse. Because after that point, one by one, the summer later in 96, my brother, for various reasons, was removed from my aunt and uncle's home and was put into a group home. And that was hard. 
A few months later, my other sister was taken out, my youngest sister, and put into a different home. That was hard. A year later, the one sister that I had left, she was taken out and put into another home. And every time each one of them begged me to go with them. But for some reason, I could hear this voice inside my head say, if you walk out that door, your life will never be the same. So I stayed. But it hurt. It hurt a lot to say goodbye. But I was messed up. I was messed up. And I was angry at God. I said, God, what in the world did I do to deserve this? You took my mother, you took my father, you took my siblings away. I'm here stuck in the middle of nowhere with nobody. How could you do this to me? How can you let me go through such pain? What did I do to deserve this? Please tell me. Did I get an answer? Not right away. I love my aunt and uncle. Love them to death. They love Jesus. But they were not the type of people that you could go and talk to about things. So I was just going through life at 14 years old, going on and on and as a teenager. I couldn't talk to them about how I felt about my siblings leaving. Couldn't talk to them about how I felt about my mom and dad passing away. Or what it was like to feel like you're alone and an orphan. Their solution was talk to Jesus. That's just the way it was. They were very old school and that was just them. You don't talk to counselors. You don't talk to anybody. You just talk to Jesus and you'll deal with it. But for this guy, I needed a little more than, than that. I needed the real deal. But God brought me through. And I'll touch on it a little bit later. But he brought me through. He did. He brought me through. But I struggled along the way. I struggled with so many questions. Who am I? Am I worthy of this? Am I worthy of love? I didn't date for a while didn't even think about getting married for a while because I was afraid I was going to turn out like my father. Because I didn't want to wish that kind of pain, manipulation, lies, and deceit on anyone. So I figured it was just better to be alone. Well, fast forward, graduate high school, go to Bible college, graduate that. I meet my beautiful wife, who was nuts to say yes to me. <laughs> but she did. But I was hesitant because I had no parents. My family was messed up and broken. My aunt and uncle, yes, they brought me in their home, but they were not really involved in my life. And I was like, who's going to want this? Who's going to want to be a part of this? Well, she said yes. <laughs> she said yes. In four days, we're going to celebrate 10 years. It, didn't get, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy at all. My wife and I didn't have the picket fence and the house and the support of everybody. It wasn't easy. You know, we had hopes and dreams like everybody else. We're going to have kids. We're going to do this. But guess what? Trying to have kids, we found out after trying, after trying, and trying, we couldn't. You can't. And it was devastating. And even though I was a little more mature in my faith at this point, it's like, God, why, why, why? 
Now, you may have saw that we have two kids today. They're my sons, but we adopted those boys, made it official last year, and it's one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life, and I don't regret it. So now I'm going to share with you, now I'm going to keep it short, but really speak to you about a few things that God's shown me along the way. And one of the things he spoke to me very early on, and I don't, I, he still reminds me, but I don't always get it, is that I am my father's son. I didn't do certain things in life. I didn't want to be in ministry. I didn't want to date much. I didn't want to get married because I was afraid that I would turn out just like my dad. But God spoke to me one day at a youth and young adult meeting of all places. And he said, you are not your dad's son, but you're my son. You are not your dad's son, but you are my son. The game changes. Some of you here this morning need to be reminded not of who you are, but whose you are. In the natural, everything was predestined for me to turn out like my earthly father. But when God the Father said, you are my son, he takes me in, it's a game changer. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. I get to sit at his table now. I get to sit at the king's table. Galatians 4, 6-7 says, Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That means that I get all the rights and privileges that come with him. The benefits, the correction that comes with him. And God is pure. His love is unconditional. He is holy. His clothing is unlike anything else. And I, as an orphan, can tell you firsthand, I've seen it come. I've experienced it myself. When he says that you are his, he takes care of his own. Now, it doesn't mean that you're not going to go through things. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes there's this weird messed up theology thinking, hey, you know what? I come to Jesus and everything's going to be all a bed of roses. No, 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 no. You're going to go through things, but he's going to be there every step of the way. And he's going to be holding your hand. And some of you in here this morning need to be reminded not of who you are, but whose you are. You are his son or daughter. You are his kid. You eat at his table. He is your inheritance. But since you are your father's son, it also means that you're a part of the family of God. And this is the second thing. The body of Christ is very important. I don't stand up here today because of anything I've done. I stand up here today because people said yes, and in the church they invested in my life. I was a ragamuffin. I was nuts. I was crazy, I was unhappy, I was angry at the world. 
And God knew I didn't have a mom to go to and cry on her shoulders. I didn't have a dad to ask about what it was like to get married. I didn't have those things. But in the moments when I needed a mother and a father, my dad brought people out of the church into my life to pour into my life. The Mama Shirley's, the Mama Betty's, the Papa Tom's, to give me direction and sometimes correction. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 13 says this, that just as the bo- as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. The body is essential. It is needed and is there for a purpose. If there's anything I've learned, salvation you cannot do on your own. If you think you can hide in a room and live out the Christ life all on your own, without nobody being involved, you are wrong. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 68, 5. I am a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is he. How do you think that is lived out? Through you. Through me. God brought people into my life to speak into my life. To say, hey, Miguel, this is the path I think I feel. This is where God is calling. I sense this. I know God's speaking to you about this. And raised up mothers and fathers to fill the voids in my life that I needed to be. Brought spiritual aunts and uncles. They were not biological but they could have been for the way they treated me because they listened. If you're in this house this morning and you claim to be a believer, then you are a part of the body of Christ, which means you are mandated to look after all the other parts and take care of one another. If there are people in here who feel like they are alone, you need to be there to be that shoulder for them to cry on, to give them a hug to pray for them, to be that listening ear. And sometimes, in love if needed, correction. (laughs) If needed. There should be no way in the world that the body of Christ, someone should walk out of here without having someone holding their hand or helping them along the way of their journey. I would not be here today if it wasn't for the people responding to the call of God in the church. It is essential. It is needed. And my third and final, final point. And this one, I, I will hammer it home, and I am constantly reminded of this always, is the power of forgiveness. My dad had passed away when I was 14 years of age. I didn't forgive him for what he had done to me, until it was about 18, 19. You do the math. Four or five years of a grudge. And it hurt. Until one day, I was just walking along the country road and God just spoke to me and said, you need to let go of this. I can't continue to move and heal through you until you let this go. Because I was bitter 
I could put a smile on. I, at this point, I could talk Christianese. I could raise my hands in church and make sure everything looked like it was, it was good. My I's were dotted, my T's were crossed. But inside, I hated my dad for what he had done. I blamed my dad for everything. I hated him. Then one day I just said, Lord, I forgive my dad for everything that he's ever, every ounce of pain, every word that he's tried, he used against me to knock me down, I forgive him. And if there are things there that I don't even know that he did, I forgive him. And Lord, help me to grow through this and forgive him. And at that moment, a big weight was lifted off my shoulder. And I could smile for real now. It was a good smile. We all know the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be, you know. If you go down a few verses after it and go to Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 to 15, it says this. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Let me say this again. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Mark chapter 11, verse 25 says, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Forgiveness is huge. Because it is a reflection, a direct reflection of who Christ is. And when we choose not to forgive... We are basically saying that person is not worthy of the unconditional love that Jesus paid the price for. Can you imagine for a second? I want you to picture this for a second. Jesus, he's sitting there and he's getting beaten and he's getting whipped and whatever. And before he gets to the cross, he's so angry in so much pain and he decides to say, you know what? I've had enough. I don't want to forgive these guys. They're so cruel. I didn't do anything. I think we'd be different today. Because Jesus had every right to hold a grudge if he wanted to in the flesh. He was perfect. He did nothing. And look at the beating he received. Some of us in here are holding on to things. Some are petty. Some are huge. When we walk around... We come Sunday after Sunday, good morning, how you doing? Praise the Lord, all is good, but deep inside. I don't like that person. Pastor didn't shake my hand on Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this person didn't talk to me today. <laughs> and we hold on to it, and it grows, and it festers. I can tell you from firsthand experience, the only person that it hurts is you. It doesn't hurt the other person. The other person's still living their life. My dad was dead and gone for five years, and I still held the grudge. He was dead. He couldn't do anything else to me. And yet, I was being destroyed. If you are holding on to something this morning, something that someone said, 
People are cruel. We live in this world. It's going to happen. Something someone said, something something did, it could be petty, it could be big. You need to let it go. And if you can't let it go, you need to ask the Lord to help you let it go. Because sometimes, you know what? It's hard to say, I forgive someone. But if you say, Lord, help me, he will help you. And I'm talking about no strings attached forgiveness. I'm not talking about, well, I'll forgive you if this person apologizes to me. Because some of us like to act like that sometimes. I'll forgive this person if they say they're sorry first. I'll forgive this person if they admit they were wrong. I'll forgive this person if they approach me first. Or maybe I'll forgive them if, you know, they decide to wear a certain thing this day or not. Whatever. Whatever your parameters are. It's, it gets crazy. No, I'm talking about true, unconditional forgiveness. Letting it all go. Because when you let it all go, the Father's heart reflects through that. And out of that comes healing. Out of that comes restoration. Out of that comes joy. Now, don't get me wrong. Forgiving doesn't mean necessarily forgetting. Let me just say that. And forgiving doesn't necessarily mean that if someone is like abusive like my dad or anything, that you have to let them 100% in your life. You can put boundaries in place that is healthy. And some safeguards. That is healthy. Forgiveness is not blind and just saying, oh yeah, okay, I forgive you, and then you jump right back into the lion's den. No, 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 no. But you have to lay it down. I don't know how you guys do things here, but I'm going to call the worship team back. Can we do that this morning? Is that okay? <laughs> I'm going to close here. I'm going to ask all of us to stand, if that's all right. I want you to take a look at someone or everyone around you right now. Take a look at your neighbor, left, right, front, back. We're human. We all got stuff going on. We all got things that we're going through. But the fact that you're sitting in this pew this morning means that you are a part of this family. So here's what we're going to do. I want you to reach out to the person around you, beside you, whatever. And this morning, I want you guys to pray for one another, to minister to one another, to be the body of Christ, to listen if need be, to hug if need be, if appropriate, and to pray. Now, this means for some of you that you may have to be vulnerable for the first time. This is the church. This is a safe place. I am a product of the safe place. God moved and he used people in a church to help a broken, beat up, nappy-headed boy become the man that I am today. So I want you to turn to your left, your right, whoever you prefer, and have a conversation and say, hey, A, is there something I can pray for you about? B, is the Holy Spirit speaking to you about something that was said today? And I want you to go to town.
Go ahead. Don't be shy. Go. Go. Thank you so much for listening to the Sermon of the Week. God wants to work in your life, and we want to hear it. Please take a moment to share your story by emailing amen at westernroadchurch.com. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope listening to this week's sermon has equipped you to be the light wherever you go.